want you to help me as we read Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. In the King James it says, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. And as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. If you'd allow me to read you the New Living Translation for these same three verses, it reads like this. For I have a great sense of obligation to the people in our culture and the people to other cultures, to the educated and the uneducated alike. I'm eager to come to you in Rome to preach God's good news, for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jews first, also the Gentiles. I don't exactly know what I want to entitle it. I've got two titles, and so I'll just let them pick. But I either, because both of the titles, when we get done, mean the same thing. One of them is either Samaria needs a sinner or Ethiopia needs a Philip. But I want to talk to you a little bit. And I, there are some sermons that, that are, are to help build your faith. There are other sermons that are there to uh, perhaps change the course of your life. But today's sermon, I want you to grab hold of it. We'll have an altar call. But to be honest, the truth and the power of this sermon is going to be felt in what you do when they leave these doors. And uh, I have prayed that the convicting power of God would be here. Not the condemnation, the convicting power. That we would hear the word. And do the word. Would you bow your head and would you pray along those lines right now in the precious name of Jesus. Father, your word is so incredible. And this church is so good at hearing the word and following the word. And I'm asking now that you would let your word once again be alive unto us. Lord, be a lamp to our feet. Show us the path we must take. And we will give you praise. God, I'm asking that you would let your word speak loudly. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. As you're seated, (coughs) Paul chose the words, at least the English translation thereof. He chose the words, I'm a debtor. There's a lot that we could talk about debt. Webster's Dictionary first indicates debt as a sin or a trespass. Says something that's owed or an obligation or a state of owing. Or it also is a common law action for the recovery of money held to be due. But tonight the topic is not the bank, it's not the car dealer, it's not the credit card companies. But there is a debt that you and I have. I wonder today, have you ever been, If and again I don't mean monetarily at all, have you ever been in someone else's debt? I have. In fact, I'll go uh, the Saturday after youth, congr- youth convention I'm going to go and help somebody move because I want them to be in my debt when I get ready to move. Sometimes that's how that works. And uh, I don't want to go help them move, but I might need their services. And so I'm going to go help them get into someone's debt. I, uh, we, last year we talked. We had a whole series of of lessons and and it was, it was on a Tuesday night couples and people paid money and we, we did the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University and his whole point is how to get out of debt. But I would tell you right now, I don't have a four year plan on how to get rid of the debt I owe this world and the debt I owe my Heavenly Father. It's impossible. There's one debt you cannot ever repay. 
In fact, let me show you. Psalms 116 says it this way. What shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? Have you ever said, I can't repay what God's done for me? Anybody here? When you look back over your life and you begin to look at your balance sheet and you say, there's no way I could give him praise 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days, 66 days if it's leap year, and I could never repay what the Lord has done for me. When I look at it, the Psalms uh, are, are, are uh, another way to look at Psalms 116 is what can I offer the Lord for all that he has done for me? I want to, now I believe that wholeheartedly. You can't repay the Lord. We're fixing to enter, well, in fact, just what, two Sundays is Easter? And uh, you look at the sacrifice on Calvary, there's no way I can repay that. But I want to change your thinking. That we don't just say and throw up our hands, so to speak, and say, I can't repay, so I'm not going to try. I would like to tell you that while you can never pay the debt off, there is something you can do because God has saved you. God has saved you. What can I do? What can I render? What can I offer the Lord for all that he's done for me? Luke chapter 10 tells us the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. That certain man that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, thieves rob him and beat him and strip him down. And he's there. The Bible says he's half dead. We hear the story. The priest walks by and sees the man lying there in the street. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees him. And he passes on the other side. A Levite comes by, another religious person. Looks on him. Gets right there and kind of, you know, man, that guy looks bad and passes on. But it's that the Bible says a certain Samaritan, not just anyone, but a certain man, as he journeyed, came to where the man broken and bruised was, and he saw him and he had compassion on him. And he went and he bound up his wounds and poured olive and wine, which was the medicine and, and, and the, the, the therapeutic powers that those two uh, compounds bring. And he, he picks him up, puts him on his own beast, and brings him to an inn and took care of him. The next day that Samaritan had to go on, but he took out some money and he gave it to the innkeeper and he said, I, I need this man to stay here until he recuperates. Whatever it costs you, whatever food he eats, whatever you want to do, this is it. And when I come back this way, I'm going to make sure that I gave you enough money. And if there's not, I'll give you more. Now this was a parable, I assume. Jesus then looked at the crowd that was gathered around him and he said, Now which of these three do you think? was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. Was it the priest that walked by head high, not looking? Was it the Levite with morbid curiosity took time to peer over the man? Or was it the Samaritan that actually did something? And they said it was the one that showed mercy. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. There is a debt you owe to this world that only you can pay. Go and do likewise. In John chapter 21, another story is portrayed. Jesus has appeared some three times to his disciples after resurrecting from the tomb. And it, there was a breakfast time that Jesus looks at Peter, the one, same one that denied him, the same one that, that, that hid in the in the, the courtyard and cussed him out and he said Simon do you love me more than the rest of these disciples now I don't think this was an arrogant 
statement by Simon. Simon says, you know I do. Let me tell you why I don't think it's arrogant. Here's why. It's real simple. To whom much has been forgiven, much is required. When I look back over my life and I see all of the places God's brought me from or kept me from or touched me, I will tell you right now, I think I love him more than you do (laughs) because I know what he's done for me. And Peter knew that, that he should have been perhaps the one on the end of the rope. Peter knew he should have been kicked out of the discipleship. Peter knew he didn't deserve to be in this presence of a resurrected Savior, but Jesus loved him. In fact, it was Jesus' own words that looked at Peter, or looked rather at, at Mary when they came to the tomb. And he said, I want you to go tell the disciples I'm resurrected, I'm raised. But go make sure Peter knows. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Okay. Blank stare is on Peter's face. He just kind of looks there. He knows Jesus doesn't have any lambs. Jesus repeats the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Peter becomes grieved. He he, he thinks that Jesus isn't listening and, and he's trying to say, yes, I love you. Don't you see? Don't you hear me? You know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. There is a definite message here. And while you could say it was for Peter and what happens on the day of Pentecost, I would say while that is an absolute true way to to look at that verse, there is a deeper message that you and I must grab hold of that. The same is true. I feel like Jesus looks at you and I today and he says, he calls you by name and he says, do you love me? I hope your response is, yes, Lord, I do. Then listen closely. He's going to say, feed my sheep. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, written by another one of the disciples that had been right there by Jesus. And I'm wondering if he's pulling from that, that, that seashore breakfast where Jesus talks to, John, to Peter. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, reading from the New Living Translation. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we pass from death to eternal life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another Christian is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life with them. We know what real life we know what real love is because Christ gave his life for us. So we ought to give our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. If anyone has money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, Let us stop saying we love each other and really show it by our actions. It's by our actions that we know we are living in the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before the Lord. I know that John was always careful to use brothers and the terminology Christian brothers. But my Bible tells me that God so loved the world that when we were sinners, he still died for us. And if God shows that kind of love, then I would tell you that the love that you and I have for this world is not relegated whether or not they love Christ back. It's the fact that God saved me when I was a sinner. And so I reciprocate that. Feed my sheep. It's a curse of the generation, not just the millennial generation, but it's a curse of satisfaction. At ease in our blessings. We've lost the hunger because the needs that we have have been met. 
Many of us have been saved so long we forget sometimes the pit in which God had brought us out of. So sometimes we sit on pews and we love the songs and we love the church and we love the fellowship. But we've never fed sheep. Paul reserved a scathing rebuke for the Corinthian church. They had grown satisfied with their church. They were okay with what was happening in their church. And their drive, their zeal for those outside the walls of the church had diminished. He said it this, and and I'm going to try to go back and forth from the King James uh, and the New Living Translation so we can get there. What makes you different from another? What do you have that you did not receive? And now that you have received, why do you glory as if you hadn't received it? You're full. You say you're rich. You've reigned as kings. But I would, God, that you reign, that we might also reign with you. He says, what makes you better than anyone else? What do you have that God hasn't given you? If all you have from God then is from God, then why are you boasting as if you've accomplished something on your own? You think you have everything you need. You think you're already rich. And I guess I wish you were rich and on a throne. Maybe we'd reign with you. But he said, we're fools for Christ's sake. In this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We've been naked and buffeted. We don't have any place to live. And we labor, working with our own hands. We've been reviled. We've been, we, we bless and we've been persecuted and we suffer. We've been defamed. We entreat. We look like the filth of the world are made to look that way. The offsprings of this day. He said, I write unto you not to shame you, but to warn you. He said, be followers of me. The reason Paul said be followers of me is because Paul was living a life that was absolutely doing what what Jesus had told Peter. Feed my sheep. I want to say it was 2009, I preached a message, the, the, the meat of the message and all the Bible verses were different, but I used a video and I found it the other day on my computer and I want to play it again and uh, as, as I play this video, I don't know if there's talking, I don't believe there is, if there is I'll quit, but I want to just tell you about this video that I've seen. story that you're seeing 
Dick and Rick Hoyt are a father and son team from Massachusetts who compete or at least have. I'm not exactly sure over the last couple of years where they are, but they've continuously ran in marathon races. If they're not running in marathon races, then they're in a triathlon, that daunting, almost superhuman combination of 26.2 miles of running, 112 miles of bicycling, and 2.4 miles of swimming. Together they've climbed mountains and once they trekked 3,735 miles across America. A remarkable feat of of exertion all the more when you consider that Rick can't walk or even talk. For the past 25 years, the father who's 65 years old at the time that that I, I found this, he has pushed his son across the country and over hundreds of finish lines. While Dick runs, Rick is in the wheelchair that Dick is pushing. When he's cycling, Rick is in the seat pod in front, attached to the front of the bike. When the father swims, Rick is in a small but firm, stabilized boat that's pulled by his dad. In 1962, the umbilical cord wrapped around the neck of Rick cut off oxygen to his brain. And when he was born, they were told that there was no hope for his development. It's the story of exclusion ever since he was born Dick said it's the eight months old they they told him we should just put him away he'll be a vegetable they wanted to raise their son as normally as they could within five years he had two younger brothers and they were convinced that Rick was just as intelligent as his siblings and they, they tried to get the schools to agree but they just couldn't there dedicated those parents taught Rick the alphabet they put him to public school and finally some people at Tufts University in the engineering department came to the rescue. They had seen some clear, unequivocal evidence of Rick's comprehension skills. They had told Rick a joke, and Rick just began to laugh. And they knew it communicates. In 1972, that family raised a staggering sum of $5,000 to create or help create or underwrite an interactive computer that would allow Rick to write out his thoughts by simply slightly moving his heads. He called it his communicator. A cursor would move across the rows that were there with letters and as it would hover over a letter, he could click a switch with the side of his head. When the computer was brought home, Rick surprised his family with the first spoken words. Perhaps they thought he would say, hi mom or hi dad, but his first words spoken with that computer was go Bruins. They were in the Stanley Cup finals that season. And the family remembered and realized they had been watching or he had been watching this the whole time. In 1975, Rick was admitted to a public school, and two years later he told his dad, I want to run in a five-mile benefit for a lacrosse player that had been paralyzed in an accident. The dad, thinking I could do this, you know what, why not? His dad had never really ran, said, I'll agree to push you. Five miles later, he pushed. They finished next to last, but they felt that they had achieved a triumph. Rick said, I don't feel handicapped when I'm competing. A whole new set of horizons opened up for the, for the family. They called themselves Team Hoyt and began to participate and compete in more and more events. He typed out, Rick did, he typed out on that computer, I, I feel like I'm not handicapped when I'm competing. I'm just like all the other athletes. I think most of the athletes feel that way. In the beginning, nobody would come and talk to me, but after a few races, some of the athletes would come and they would talk to me and I remember one time they, they made a, a one runner, Pitt, Pete Wazinski, made a bet with me on every race as to who would beat who and the loser would have to hang the winner's number in his bedroom. 
and they'll come and wish me luck. They entered the Boston Marathon in 1981. Dad pushing, Rick riding. And they finished in the top quarter of the field. They, they, the father, Dick, he, he recalls that in the early days no one wanted it. They didn't want Rick there. They looked at him. No one talked to him. They didn't want to have anything, but they began to learn. After four years of marathons, they decided to do a triathlon. And for this, Dick had to learn to swim. He had never swum in, swam in his life. And so he said, I sank like a stone. He said, I hadn't been on a bike since I was six years old. But they built a bike designed to carry Rick in the front. And a boat was tied to the waist of Dick as he swam. Again, they came in second to last in a competition held on Father's Day 1985. They've been competing everything they've done. When they pass by, athletes will say, go for it. Run, go, Team Hoyt. And they can see it. I don't know if you caught at the end of that video clip, but it made a powerful statement that I saw probably some 10 or more years ago when I first came across this. It's the message of Tim Hoyt, or, I'm sorry, of Team Hoyt that should be included in the life of every Christian in this church today. I know it's a heartbreaking story and I can see the tears just because you see the incredible thing. But I, I, I was amazed. It said that Dick Hoyt is the body and Rick Hoyt is the heart. I would tell you today if I could spin this to what God wants you and I to know. I would say that you are the body of Christ. And the heartbeat of Christ is a dying world. It's what put him on the cross. It's what held him on the cross. I know there were nails and hands and feet, but to be honest, he'd have hung on to that cross for his life. If there were no nails, there's something in the mind of Christ that requires you and I to do it. There has to be a body that is willing to do what God desires. I remember a friend of mine, Billy Glenn, I preached about him. But Billy Glenn had an invalid friend for a long time. And he, she would ask Billy, and he would do it. He, she would ask Billy, she would say, Billy, would you run the aisles for me today? Because I can't. Stories like that get me. Because I realize I'm a debtor. It's interesting, Paul, although other places Paul said, I'm in debt to God. He decided to say here, he's not, I'm in debt to the world. To the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. Why? Because I have to preach the gospel. I preached last, I want to say September uh, 2016. Again, a different sermon, different verses, but still the same message. And I entitled it, The Message Needs a Messenger. Of all of the things that God could do, He chose you and I and our voice. Think about that. Of all of the things that God could do, the Old Testament is full of miracles and miraculous things. And the New Testament is too in, in part, but I don't see Red Seas being opened. I do see Peter walking on water, but I don't see Red Seas opening. I don't see Jordan rivers drying up. I don't see quail and manna falling. I don't see fire and brimstone raining down on unsuspecting towns who are living a horrid lifestyle. I don't see walls of Jericho falling flat. 
Instead, Jesus looks at 12 ragtag disciples and others that were there, and he says, if the church is ever going to progress, it's going to take your voice, and it's going to take your witness. In fact, to be honest, I'll be there, and I will let your words be with signs following. But that's the key. The signs follow the words. If you're sitting back waiting for God to split the heavens, if you're sitting back waiting for God to go shake a family, if you're sitting back waiting for God to do something in your neighborhood, I hate to bust your bubble, but he said he's not doing anything until you do something. Say, how in the world do you get this this, uh, uh, title? Very creative, Mike. He decided to put both of them up there. John chapter 1 Verse 35, we read the first part of that today in our message, the the Word and the Word becoming flesh. But as you get to the end of John chapter 1, you find that the next day after John had stood, two of his disciples, this is John the Baptist, not the same John that wrote that gospel, but John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looking upon Jesus as he walked by, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. See, John the Baptist didn't only say that when he baptized uh, Jesus. In fact, the whole ministry of John the Baptist was this. I'm preaching to show you Jesus. And in my preaching, if you start following Jesus and you kind of leave my circle, I'm okay with that. Because that's the message. Those two disciples heard John speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto him, What are you doing? Why are you seeking me? And they said unto him, Rabbi, meaning master, where dwellest thou? Where do you live? And Jesus said unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt. And they stayed with him for the day, and it was about the tenth hour. One of those that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Andrew, you don't hear a lot in the Bible about Andrew. You you don't see any miracles that I know of attributed to Andrew. I can't find any any, any miracles that are there. I I don't really see a lot about Andrew. But one of the greatest things that Andrew did was he first found his brother Peter, or Simon. And he said unto him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. And Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, but you'll be called Cephas or Peter, which is by interpretation a stone. Interesting. Can I just tell you today that you may never preach behind a pulpit, you may never have a solo in a choir, you, you may never pray for someone and they ever be healed, but it could be the greatest achievement of your life is you told your family, I have found the Savior. I have found the Savior. Can I tell you today that for every Peter that goes on to preach the gospel, for every Peter that stands on an upper room balcony and preaches to 3,000 people and the fire falls again, there's an Andrew that preceded that, that came and told him every preacher needs an Andrew to tell him the gospel. Somebody here is one of those people. You've got family members that desperately need to hear the gospel. And you're the one that could bring him. Or I could tell you that the next day, Jesus went forth into Galilee. 
And there he found a man named Philip, and he said, follow me. Philip was of Bethsaida, the same, fam- same city, rather, of Andrew and Peter. And verse 45 of John chapter 1 says, Now Philip findeth Nathanael, and said unto him, We have found the one. We, we have found the one in whom the Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael was a little skeptical. What? He came out of, out of Nazareth? Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. You know, surely this is not where the Savior comes. And Philip says, come and see. And he brings, Philip to, he brings Nathanael to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, behold, an Israelite indeed of whom there is no guile. Nathanael says, how do you know who I am? And Jesus said, before Philip called thee, when you were under a fig tree, I saw you. Can I tell you today right now? There's a God that sees your loved ones before you've ever talked to them one time about the Lord. They may be sitting under a fig tree. They may be sitting at work. They may be lying in bed. They may be watching TV. They may be doing whatever they're doing. But God is already seeing them before you ever get up the nerve to go tell them and say, Hey, I want to invite you to a church service. I want to tell you about the God that can do all things. Every Peter needs an Andrew, every Nathaniel needs a Philip. And then you have Acts chapter 16, where Paul said it was a Sabbath day. We went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was made. We sat down and spake unto the woman which resorted thither. It was just a religious gathering. They didn't know everything. It was just a time where people came and prayed. And there in that little prayer meeting on the side of a river, A certain woman whose name was Lydia, seller of purple, the city of Thyatira. They worshipped God and she heard us. Her heart was open and she attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. And just in a simple prayer meeting, not even at a church, a religious person who was hungry for more was baptized in her entire household because there was a Paul that was willing to talk to someone at a prayer meeting. Or I could take you to the book of Acts chapter 8. Philip is having an incredible revival. I mean, it is absolutely popping. Things are going on. It's amazing. that He's never seen God move like this. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord says, I need you to leave Jerusalem and go down into Gaza, that desert, and there you're going to meet an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He has charge of all of her treasure. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. And he's leaving, and he's reading Isaiah. The Spirit said, go near. Philip ran to where he was, and as he's running, he hears that Ethiopian unit reading the Bible, if you will, reading the Scriptures, and he says, do you know what you're reading? The Ethiopian said, no, I don't. I I, I wish I did. I don't understand it. I wish someone was here to guide me. And so he said, can I jump up? And Philip jumped up in that chariot. And he began to speak and talk to him. And answered all of the questions and kept preaching of Isaiah through the chapters. And finally when it's done. And after Jesus, or after Philip preached Jesus. That Ethiopian eunuch saw a body of water and he said, can I get baptized? And he did. Because every Ethiopian needs a Philip. A Philip that's willing to leave his comfort zone. To leave the church and the revival for one soul that God speaks. 
I have learned this in my life, that God, if we'll ask him, will lay that one soul on our heart. It's the one hungry soul. Because every Ethiopian needs a Philip. I could take you to the book of John. I, I, I say this sort of joking, but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious in part of it. You'll catch the joke. I love to fish, y'all know that, and I had hung up enough crappie jigs on the brush over the last couple of weeks that I had to go restock across the highway there by Mattis, or uh, by uh, JJ's Restaurant is a little bait store called Bullseye Bait and Tackle. I've been in there. Sometimes I just like going to a local place, and I was there, and usually we're talking fishing, and usually they try to take all my money, and I, I give it willingly. But I was there, and I bought the jigs I needed, and there was a, a lady at the cashier that I didn't recognize. It's a very small place. Uh, and, and she was there behind the counter, an older lady, and she was a talker. And she wanted to talk, and I really needed to get back here. I told Sister Sharon I was going to get something to eat for lunch, and I'd be right back. And I just passed the bait shop, and it pulled me in, and I was tempted, and I fell. And I'm in there, and I'm trying to get back here because I'm supposed to be back here. Somewhere in the course of that conversation, it changed. Tears welled up in her eyes as she began to talk about her family. Great need in her family, some brokenness that's going on, some conflict. We began to talk about the Lord. Now, I joked with Brienne, and I said, you know, I really don't like to fish. I don't want to fish, but if God's going to call me to the fish store just so I can witness, I'll do that. And uh, so, so I just want you to know I'm ministering. It's my ministry, my fishing ministry. But I've learned something in my life. It doesn't matter where you are. Hungry people are there. Ended up giving her my, my number, my, my, the church address. Plan on going back there. We t- I invited her to Easter. She says she wants to come. Because every woman in a bait shop needs someone to preach the gospel. I've watched... Several. In fact, today it happened, and, 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 and again, fishing is there, so see, it's a ministry. Fishing, it, it, I, as long as God uses me, I'm going to do it. We're at Texas Roadhouse today. We're eating, because that's what good Pentecostal people do. And somewhere the, the waiter is there, and I'll be honest, I'm not always the, the I, I don't always make eye contact with the waiter because it's food. Put the food in front of me, let me eat. I don't want to talk, I want to eat. And that day, the or, or today rather, the waiter, he, he was there and usually I get a little peeved when waitresses and waiters eavesdrop on my conversation. It's my conversation. Don't get all up in my business. But Zane said something about crappie fishing and the man, he perked up. He said, do you like to crappie fish? I said, absolutely. Only caught, well, four of us did. I caught 147 of them Saturday and I cleaned every one of them. So I had a story to tell him. But in the meantime, he said, y'all come in here often. He said, usually you have like 20 of you sometimes. I said, yeah, I pastor the church. He said, really? Gave him. I didn't have a card on me because I'd left my phone and stuff here at the church by accident. And so I wrote it down. I've watched my wife. I've watched others at at, at these restaurants. I've watched you. I've watched a waitress sit on the, the, the bench next to my wife and some of you ladies. And I've watched tears in her eyes as you begin to tell her because every waitress and every waiter needs someone to tell them the gospel doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter what you do, 
They need to hear the truth. Jesus stopped by the woman there in Samaria. He stopped on a, a, a well and a woman came. When you begin to research the woman, you realize that she had had a lot of husbands. And I'm not really sure why. I guess theoretically all of them could have died, but that's not the gist that I get out of there. Especially when he says you're living with one that's not your husband. It seems to indicate there was something going on. I think it's okay to categorize her as a sinner. Jesus begins to talk. The disciples were out in the village. They were getting some food. And Jesus said, no, i got to stop here. There's something I have to do. And so it was that he began to sit there on that well. And he begins to, for, for lack of a better word, he begins to read that woman's mail. And the Bible says she goes back into the city and while she's in the city there, uh, the disciples come back and they got food and they say, aren't you hungry? And Jesus says, no, I've already eaten. What did you eat? No, you, you don't understand. I'm, I've been satisfied in a whole nother way. In John chapter 4 verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went the way into the city and said to all the men, now, I've preached on this woman a long time. It's been, I, I've preached on this story almost... As soon as I began to preach, it was a sermon that made sense to me. The reason she was coming in the middle of the day is because she probably didn't want to talk to anybody else. Her lifestyle was such that she was ashamed. I, I'm pretty confident she really didn't want to see or speak to anybody there. And I don't know how many of those five men and now six that she's been with, I don't know if any of them abused her or hurt her, but maybe she really wasn't looking for another man that day. But it's interesting. When she leaves the city, she goes, and the Bible says she went away into the city and said to the man, Come and come, said to the men, Come and see a man which told me all the things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. Jesus says to those disciples, as the people are streaming out of the city, Look up, the fields are white of harvest. The Bible teaches and tells us. Verse 39, that many of the Samaritans in that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all I ever did. I can't impress on you enough how important your testimony is. Let me show you why. They would have never come if, I, if, I, if Jesus is the preacher. We know he's more than that. But if Jesus is the preacher... They would have never come to hear the preacher except she told them her testimony. And when they came and they heard the preaching, they believed. And then they said, Jesus, would you stay? And Jesus stayed there in that city two days and many more believed because of the words that Jesus said. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of your saying, but because we've heard him ourselves. The very lady who was shunned became one of the greatest soul winners that the Bible ever records. She first found God and then led others to Christ. Because every Samaria needs a sinner saved by grace. If Jesus would have walked in that city, because you know how it is, Jews and Samaritans, it's oil and water. 
Even the own disciples said, what, Jesus, you don't want to stay here. They're, they're dogs. They're, I mean, even you, Jesus said, you know, why should the, 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 the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table? They're half-breed Jews. They don't even really worship the same way we worship. And, and, and really, come on, Lord, let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to the, the people that matter. And Jesus said, no, I must come through here. But if Jesus would have walked into Samaria, and if Jesus would have begun to preach... They would have shut him down and they would have never listened. But there was one lady that was the key to that entire city because she heard the words of Jesus and it pricked her heart and she was saved. And she went and told others. The greatest thing that this church needs is not another song. It's not another church service. It's not another program while I am appreciative of all the giving it's not another offering or another give to grow campaign all of that's important I'm not telling you to don't come to church I'm not telling you to not give but the greatest need that the Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church has is someone to go and tell it might be your family it might be an Andrew and a Peter or a Philip and a Nathaniel it might be a Philip leaving the church just to go reach one person. Leaving a red hot revival where he could have stayed at the altar and just basked in the presence of the Lord. But something drew him out of the walls of the church to find one. Or it could be a, just a little sinner woman that's been changed by the power of God whose testimony compels her to go back to the city and say, come meet a man who can tell you everything. This world is broken. This world is bruised. They need help. They need the four people that are able to lower them down into the presence of God. I can preach all the sermons I want behind this pulpit. But if they've never been invited, chances are they won't come. So I've made up my mind. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep singing. I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to keep doing everything I can do. But this man has to start telling. This man has to start drawing. This man has to start giving his testimony. Because how shall they come if they don't hear? I invite you to stand right now. I know that you've heard everything that that I've been preaching and I'm going to give us a chance to pray at this altar because I think it's appropriate for us to make a response right now while we're in the moment I'm going to tell you the greatest test is going to be what you do when you leave those double doors I've personally made it a point this month in my life and, it, and part of it is because it's Easter and I want this church absolutely filled. If it's going to be filled, it's going to start with me. But I've made it a point this, this month, and I'm going to do it going forward, but really this month, I've made it a point to start being very bold in, in asking. In fact, while I was preaching about 14 minutes ago, somebody I texted earlier this week that I hadn't heard of in a long time, 
They're texting me back. I believe God's going to bring them at Easter. Because they need to hear it one more time. I don't know how much more, how much clearer I can make this. But the greatest need in this church is for you to step out of these doors and out of these walls and tell the testimony and they will come. I'm going to open these altars not for you to make foolish promises for the Bible says it'd be better for you not to make a promise and not do it than you to make a bunch of vain promises and leave it behind. I'm not asking you for you to come and tell God everything you're going to do. I'm just asking for you to come and say, Lord, give me wisdom, give me strength, give me the ability. Lord, direct my mind, show me who I should talk to. I'm asking that the Lord lay someone on your heart right now that this week you can't sleep. You can't hardly function because that person and that burden is so strong on you. Because I'm convinced that this week there is somebody that God wants you to talk to. Don't just say, hey, come to my church, but there is a testimony that's going to draw them and woo them. Open these altars. I open wherever you are for you to come because every Samaria needs a sinner. Every Ethiopian needs a Philip. Every Peter needs an Andrew. Lord, Would you come? Lay some soul upon.